It was the week of Passover, perhaps two years before the Passover during which Jesus was crucified. Jesus was relatively new on the scene of Israel, having only recently revealed himself publicly in his baptism and in the calling of his first disciples and in the changing of water into wine at the wedding supper at Cana in Galilee. And when that Passover was at hand, Jesus, like all Orthodox Jews, made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the feast. His presence in Jerusalem during that first Passover created quite a stir. In a fit of righteous rage, Jesus had cleansed the temple, thrashing the money changers with a homemade whip, driving out the sheep and the oxen, overturning the tables, sending coins flying everywhere. He had also performed a number of miracles which had attracted the attention of the crowd, so says John in John chapter 2, but it had also attracted the attention of the religious leaders. Jesus was the talk of all Jerusalem that first Passover, yet no one knew quite what to make of this miracle-working prophet from Galilee. What is clear is that the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, was unsettled by Jesus' attendance at the feast. One of their number, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, was particularly intrigued. As Nicodemus sat and listened to the heated debate in the Sanhedrin as they argued over what to make of Jesus and perhaps more to the point what to do about Jesus, Nicodemus couldn't shake that persistent, gnawing thought, but what if he really is from God? So Nicodemus determined that he was going to learn more. He came to Jesus by night, probably out of fear of the Jews. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs which you do unless God is with him. Okay, Implicit in that statement is a question. Who are you? Are you a a teacher? Are you a rabbi? Are you the Messiah? Nicodemus doesn't know what to make of this man who speaks and who acts with such unparalleled authority, but he has this going for him, which sets him apart from the rest of his Pharisaic brethren. He's unwilling to dismiss Jesus out of hand. He's willing to go wherever the evidence might lead. And so he came to Jesus. But Jesus' response to Nicodemus was terse and mysterious. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now we know what Jesus meant, for we have the benefit of the New Testament as a witness to the nature and the necessity of the new birth. Jesus meant that in his natural state, Nicodemus was incapable of understanding or embracing who Jesus is. If Jesus were to have just told him straight out, I am the Christ, Nicodemus would have understood Christ, Messiah, 
to mean what most first century Jews meant when they used the term Messiah. That is a Davidic king who would drive out the Gentiles, restore the kingdom, and renew the covenant in faithfulness with Israel. He would not understand what Jesus meant by Messiah. He would not understand Jesus to mean a sin-bearing substitute, a sacrificial Passover lamb slaughtered for the sins of his people. He would not understand the kingdom of God in terms of a spiritual kingdom conquering over the powers of sin and death and darkness. In his natural state, Nicodemus could only understand Jesus in natural terms and put him in natural categories. So Jesus says to him, in order to believe in order to understand, in order to see the kingdom that I have come to inaugurate, Nicodemus, you must be born again. But Nicodemus does not understand. So he says to Jesus, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus explains that the birth of which he speaks is a spiritual birth, not a natural birth. And that is a spiritual birth that is necessary to enter into a spiritual kingdom. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus responds to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Those who are only of the flesh cannot enter into a spiritual kingdom, nor can they inherit spiritual blessings From God. There must be a radical inward transformation. There must be an awakening of the soul, an awakening of the spirit out of death and into new life. The language that Jesus uses here of the wind or the spirit, it's the same word in the Greek, probably comes, at least it probably would have drawn Nicodemus' attention to Ezekiel chapter 37 and the vision of the valley of dry bones. What Jesus is saying is that if Nicodemus or anyone else is to enter into God's everlasting kingdom, their dead bones must be brought to life by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. They must be born again. And Nicodemus is astonished. All he can manage to utter is, how can these things be? Nicodemus had believed all his life That entrance into the kingdom of God came through obedience to God's commands. Faithfulness to God's covenant. Devotion to God's will. Inclusion among God's people. These were the things to which Nicodemus had devoted his whole life. These were things which were all of them externally attainable. And no doubt Nicodemus imagined that he had attained them. 
Yet now Jesus is telling him that entrance into the everlasting kingdom of God depends upon an inward work that he can in no way accomplish. Something that is not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, says John 1.11. Something that must be worked from above by the sovereign spirit who blows where he wills. You can almost feel in John chapter 3, the foundations of Nicodemus's life crumbling beneath his feet as Jesus is knocking out every prop on which he had rested his hope of eternal life. And Jesus then responds that knowledge of the new birth was available in the very scriptures that Nicodemus had read and taught his whole life. In other words, he'd missed it. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Jesus is saying this is elementary. This is foundational truth. And I say the same to you this evening. Like Nicodemus, you must begin here or else nothing else will make sense and you will go awry at every point of the Christian faith. You will turn it into a religion of achievement. No, says Jesus, to that religion of achievement. You must be born again. Or like Nicodemus, you will be doomed to spend your life trying to obey a God whom, if you are honest, you do not love. A God who seems to you ever distant and ever displeased. A God whom at the best you can just hope to placate or perhaps appease. All of your religious works, if you are not born again, will be but empty ritual and vain repetition. There will be no faith, there will be no grace, there will be no love, there will only be teeth-gritting work, and you will not enter into the everlasting kingdom. You must start here in the Christian life. You must be born again. But how? How does this new birth, this necessary, radical, inward transformation take place? Well, first, Jesus would have you know that it is not something that you or I can do. It's not something that we can make happen. Otherwise, it would just be another work by which we save ourselves. Babies do not give birth to themselves. The dead do not raise themselves, and neither can you cause yourself to be born again. Be born again is a command that is found nowhere in Scripture because it would be nonsensical. It would be like telling a corpse to make itself live again. But that does not mean that we are passively fatalistic, just waiting to see if and when the wind will blow. That's not how Jesus instructs Nicodemus. On the one hand, Jesus does not tell Nicodemus to do what only God can do, that is to cause himself to be born again. But on the other, 
He tells Nicodemus the gospel and he merely instructs him to believe. First, he tells Nicodemus of his divine origins. You remember that Nicodemus had come to Jesus with the question, in essence, who are you? We know you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do the things which you do if God were not with him. Now Jesus tells him that he is right about where Jesus comes from. He comes from God. In fact, Nicodemus is more right than he even knows. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is the unique, divine Son of Man who descended from heaven and therefore is uniquely qualified to speak of heavenly things like the new birth. Second, then, he tells Nicodemus of his divine mission. And this is where I want to focus the remainder of our meditation this Good Friday evening. Jesus explains to Nicodemus the purpose of the Son of Man's descending from heaven in terms that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus, being a story out of the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 21. Jesus says to him, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As I said, this story comes from the 21st chapter uh, chapter of the book of Numbers when the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years between Egypt and the Promised Land. And those familiar with the wilderness journeys of Israel would know that it was a generation that was marked by their unbelief and their rebellion against God. Though God had brought them out of the bondage of Egypt by great displays of his power, and though he had led them through the Red Sea while destroying Pharaoh's army, and though he had made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai to give to them the land of Canaan to be their God and to make them his cherished people, and though he had provided for them numerous times over and over again in the wilderness with manna from heaven and water from the rock, yet they they repeatedly grumbled against God. And Numbers 21 is just another in a long line of those examples of their faithless murmuring against the Lord. Numbers 21 and verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. God judged Israel for their sin by sending upon them a plague of fiery serpents. That is, an infestation of poisonous snakes whose venom burned like fire in the blood of those whom they bit. And many were bitten and many died. And this horrific judgment had its intended effect. The people repented for their sin. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, watch this, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it up on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and he would live. Now, Jesus takes that familiar story from Israelite history and he says to Nicodemus, that's why the Son of Man descended from heaven. That's what I have come to do. That's the kind of Christ I have come to be. In short, Jesus preaches the gospel to Nicodemus and he bids him to believe. So let's do the same thing this evening. Let's take the the judgment of the fiery serpents in Numbers 21 and let's relate it to John 3 and to the saving work of Jesus Christ. I see at least five connections between those stories that we need to hear this evening. Number one, unbelief lies at the root of all sin. That was the Israelites' problem. They grumbled because they did not believe. They did not trust in God's promise to bring them safely into the promised land. They did not trust in God's provision to sustain them at every step upon their journey. They did not believe that God was worth their wholehearted love or devotion or worship. As the author of Hebrews makes clear that That Israelite generation was unable to enter into God's rest because of unbelief. And so it is with all men in their natural estate by birth. Our fundamental problem is that we do not believe God. We do not believe that He is and that He is the rewarder of those that diligently seek Him or else we would diligently seek Him. We do not believe that he is infinitely glorious and infinitely beautiful and infinitely satisfying and therefore infinitely worth our love and our devotion and our worship. If we believed that about God, we would love him and we would be devoted to him and we would worship him with all of our hearts and souls and lives. At the root of all of our sin is unbelief. And that kind of unbelief is damning. So number two, the penalty for unbelief is judgment and death. It is a damnable thing to not believe the living God. It is a damnable thing to grumble against Him and to distrust Him and to despise Him. It is a damnable thing to prefer other things above him. It is a damnable thing to wish that he did not exist, to wish that we could rule over ourselves, to wish that we could be our own gods. It is a damnable thing to not love him who is most lovely with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and infinitely glorious, infinitely beautiful, infinitely holy being is worthy. He's infinitely worthy of praise and honor and glory and to render to him anything less is infinitely damning. A plague of fiery serpents is but a pale metaphor of the horror of judgment that such unbelief deserves. Third, God in his unmerited love has provided a remedy for our unbelief and the judgment that it has deserved. 
It's true, there is no explicit mention of love as the motivation for mercy in Numbers 21, although that motivation is made plain at several other points throughout the Old Testament. But the mercy shown to Israel is certainly unmerited. There is no other reason for God hearing Moses' prayer of intercession and providing a rescue from the serpents of his judgment. He could have left the Israelites to suffer the judgment of their sin and been perfectly just in doing so. Even so, God could have left every one of us to suffer the damning penalty of our unbelief, but He hasn't. He has provided a remedy for sin and for judgment. And it is Jesus Himself who makes this connection between that remedy in verses 14 and 15 and the love of God for the world in verse 16. John 3.16, which is probably the most famous verse in all of the Bible, is providing the grounds for why Christ died to save sinners like us. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever would believe in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So know this this evening. God loves sinners fiercely, graciously, sovereignly. And that love that God has for sinners like us is the grounds of the gospel promise. Fourth, the remedy for sin is provided in such a way as to display the horror of judgment. God instructed Moses to craft a fiery serpent. Why? I mean, why that? I think it's because it's a picture of judgment and it's a reminder of their sin. And he instructed Moses to lift it up on a pole so that all could see. In other words, God thinks that a vital part of their cure was a remembrance of the judgment that they were due. All Israel could look up and could see the serpent on the pole and could know that's what sin deserves. Even so, says Jesus, the Son of Man must be lifted up on a cross. When Jesus was lifted up on Golgotha in the sight of all Israel, bloodied and torn, disfigured beyond recognition, hanging in agony and shame and indescribable pain. He was displaying for all Israel to see the horror of sin and judgment. It was a wretched thing to behold. The death of Jesus Christ was a wretched thing to behold. All of that blood and all of that death and all of that wrath. It is a damnable thing to not believe the living God. And when the Son of Man was lifted up on the cross, it was a sign for all of us to see that's what damnation looks like. Fifth, the way to access that remedy is by faith. The instructions to the afflicted Israelites were simple and clear. Look and live. That was it. Look and live. Behold 
and be saved. Their salvation that day was rooted entirely in faith. All that was required was that they believe God's promise. Behold the serpent lifted up on the pole and they would be saved. And even so, says Jesus, must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life and be saved from the wrath of God which is due us for our sin. It is all of faith. Believe God's promise. Behold God's Son. Be saved from God's judgment. This was the gospel that Jesus preached to Nicodemus that Passover night so long ago. And this is the gospel that I preach to you this Passover night. So let me summarize it again in three points. Number one, you must be born again. Hear me, because chances are there are some of you who came in tonight like Nicodemus, dead in trespasses and sins. We heard this past Sunday at a deacon ordination from Joe Shearer that he was born again on a good Friday night like this some 12, 13 years ago. And maybe by God's grace, that's his plan for you tonight. So listen, you must be born again. No amount of religious works, no amount of religious knowledge, no amount of religious pedigree can save you from the judgment to come. Those are all external things. They are the fruit of the flesh. They are not of faith and they do not arise from love. Therefore, they are but the fruit of your unbelief. All of the, of the religious strivings of sinful and unregenerate men can only bring forth more sin and more death because a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. It can only produce more rottenness. And the religious works of unregenerate men are rotten. They are vehicles for pride and the desire to control God and to put Him in your debt so that you can manipulate Him to do what you want. Therefore, there must be a radical inward transformation. There must be an awakening. There must be a coming alive. There must be a new birth. You must be born again or you will not enter the kingdom of God. That's truth number one you need to hear tonight. Truth number two you need to hear follows closely upon it. You can't cause yourself to be born again. You cannot give birth to yourself. You cannot raise yourself to life. You cannot awaken your soul out of spiritual death. You cannot change your own heart. Jeremiah said, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? then neither can you who are accustomed to doing evil turn and do good. You can't work against your nature. That which is born of flesh is flesh, says Jesus. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And you are born of the flesh, and you must be born of the Spirit. You cannot cause the wind to blow. The wind blows where it wills. So if you're here tonight and like Nicodemus, 
you felt the foundations of your life rocked. You felt the props of your religious works knocked out from underneath you as you've come to realize those things can't save you. They're just the fruit of your unbelief as you're trying to control God to do what you want Him to do. What do you do? If you must be born again and you can't make that happen, what do you do? You look to Jesus and he'll cause you to live. That is exactly where Jesus wanted Nicodemus, having every prop of self-righteousness knocked out from underneath him, having naught but to look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross for his sins. You are not born again by trying to be born again. You are born again by looking to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross for your sins. You are born again as you look to the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and realize deep in your soul, number one, that unbelief lies at the root of all of your sin. Number two, that such unbelief is damning. Number three, yet God loves you and in His unmerited love, He has provided a remedy for your sin. Number four, that this remedy was provided in such a way as to demonstrate the horror of sin and judgment. And number five, that the only hope you have have is the mercy of God in Christ received by faith. That's how you're born again. The wind blows where it wills. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be coerced. It cannot be constrained. But Jesus does not tell you to call forth the wind. He tells you to look at the Son of Man lifted up on the cross and to live. And so this Good Friday evening, I I don't direct your eyes inward. I direct your eyes upward. I direct your eyes to Jesus. And I invite you to see him bloodied and torn, hanging upon the cross, bearing your guilt and your shame and the wrath of God that was due unto you for your sin. And I want you to know that God sent him there because he loves you. So behold the Son of Man lifted up. And believe on him and you will be saved. Because by looking on him, you have been born again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Otherwise, you wouldn't have looked. And you wouldn't have lived. The Son of Man was lifted up that sinners might look to Him and live. And that's my invitation to you tonight. Look to the Son of Man and live.